This is Bonjour Chai. The only thing orderly in Canada right now is the Order of Canada edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we go deep on the new Order of Canada recipients, and I speak to Rabbi Daniel Korupkin about his op-ed in the CJN on dealing with the fallout from the Chaim Walder scandal. But first, Alana, David, it's been a while. Happy New Year. Happy Secular New Year. Shana Tova, all that stuff. What's been new in your lives? Um, what's new, David? Uh, last week I performed on stage as a giant dinosaur. Oh my gosh. Oh, wow. Wait, is Calgary shutting down theater now too? Like Toronto? We will never... No, absolutely not. No, we, we're we always so the lucky. last to do all the shutdowns. We're going to look at Ontario. We'll look at Quebec. And only when it's past the precipice will we decide to shut down. So our theaters, while limited capacity, still remained open. So um, I, I'm involved in a show called The Dinosaur Tale. And I dress up like a, a huge dinosaur. It's like 50 pounds that I wear and I dance around the stage. It's a fun little play for kids. Uh, but we got to perform, which was great. Is the run not over yet? Like, do you have more shows as the world is crumbling no, the, around us? I, I know. Well, there was always talk about like extending it and going on a cross Canada tour, which may happen in the future if if COVID ever comes to an end. Um, so you know, Saskatoon, pay attention. We may be coming to your town in the future. But um, at the moment, probably nothing for at least six months. Yeah, fair enough. I took a, to- a total, total break. I actually went camping, if you can believe it, in a 1970s refurbished trailer um, for five days last week and did a little artist retreat. So I brought a whole bunch of writing material and my ukulele and art supplies, and basically did you, art. You play for the ukulele. Fun. I do play the ukulele, and I sing. I, whoa! I had no idea. Yeah. Can we have a ukulele cover of our theme song at some point? Ooh, we can. We can look into that. What were you gonna say, David? So, I was just gonna say, is this the first time you've been camping? In my life, no. But I've never been camping in the winter. Though we did have a propane heater, so it's not like I was in a tent on the ground. It was a, you know. With walls, okay, insulated. So this, this wasn't like glamping <laughs> at all. It was a little glampy, except for the fact that there was, um, the toilet situation was very interesting. And uh, I won't disgust you with the details, but um, yeah, it was, uh, that was the <laughs> an experience. Um, but the, the, the cabinet, the trailer itself was insulated, um, but we were in the middle of nowhere. Um, on Crown Land near Perry Sound, uh, in the middle of trees and and snow, and when we made a bonfire, um, we were still very cold. <laughs> See, this this sounds like my personal. Did horror you just story. refer to unceded native land as Crown Land? Isn't that what it's called when it's Crown Land? Like when it's free? Oh uh, yeah, free but only if you're an imperialist colonialist. Oh whoa! Oh. This is taking. We're a starting huge early turn. this morning. <laughs> <laughs> what did you get up to, Avi? Uh, I got I got Omicron. Oh and I yeah! Gave it to all my family. Oh no! <laughs> Was it? Did you get symptoms? Um, I got a flu for a couple of days. Okay. Uh, honestly, like I had the worst because I, I kept joking. I remember the very early days of like you know COVID, like two years ago. I remember joking with a friend. I was like, "Oh my god, you should just go to China for like a one day visit and come back. You'll have to quarantine for fourteen days. And like it's great. You won't have to go to work. You'll be away from your kids. Nothing will be like you, it's the greatest vacation. You say it's not my fault. And I have to go and quarantine. Is what we were thinking about. And I was like, "Oh man, quarantine 
could be kind of okay because I can just hole up in my bedroom with books and movies and have I can't cook so food will have to be come to me and that's it and then I got sick for two days it turns out that I gave it to everybody and so on the third day when I was actually feeling better we opened up the house because everybody was sick anyway so I didn't even get that like long extended quarantine (laughs) that I was looking forward to where I could read 30 books in a week and a half and nope um I that's an interesting way of looking at it looking at what quarantine yeah quarantine getting getting COVID you were you're it's almost like you were kind of looking forward to it and you were like drat now I can't even enjoy this thinking that one of the side benefits of doing that aside from the immunity that you get about from COVID um after having gotten it was like maybe I would get some alone time and you know in a house where kids are on zoom school and they've been on zoom school for the past month or they've been on vacation I you don't get a lot of space where you get to just do your own thing and uh I didn't get that either but it's fine I did a lot of pretty crazy puzzles I uh I did one that was like this art PU. We've been talking about puzzles. Always Chris Ware, who's a big graphic novelist, took several panels from one of his big graphic novels called Building Stories, and he turned them into a puzzle. Um, and I did it sight unseen, like without looking at the picture. Ooh, because it's not fancy. on the cover. It's only on the back inside, and it was very difficult. But I did it, and I had fun. And that was basically it. We haven't done anything cool or interesting. Everything's shut down here. Um, yeah, Quebec is real shut down. I got to a bar on the night before the shutdown of like bars restaurants are shut down everything's like it's not helping it's like everybody's really frustrated at this point yeah and yeah they must be super tired at this point again and same again in toronto everyone's yeah. pretty fed up we're done um and that's really i feel like you know the egyptians um at the end of this week's tour portion where it's like hey fine israelites go get out of here right we're done we've had plagues after plagues after plagues and it only takes like pharaoh to finally let everybody out but uh Somebody, please, let our people go. And where would we go? Anywhere. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Off the island of Montreal. Um, Yeah. So that's, it's been a quiet month or whatever. And uh, looking forward to getting back into the swing of recording this every week with you guys. Ditto. Amen. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. Last week, the Governor General of Canada, Mary Simon, announced 135 new recipients of the Order of Canada, one of the country's highest civilian honors. 18 of those members are Jewish, and we've decided to take time this week to speak to some of them. We're about to hear interviews we did individually with uh, Rabbi Baruch Friedman Cole, Kara Tannenbaum, Jane Heyman, and Olga Korper. And after those, I have a brief chat with Rabbi Adam Shire of Congregation Charshamayim in Montreal about the remarkable number of members of the Order of Canada in his congregation and what that means. But before we do that, um, what do you guys make of the Order of Canada? Is it like something that's on your radar in general because oh. of the arts world? Or is it like something big, something not? I'll just say what a auspicious number. 18 Jews this year? What, what a magical number. That makes complete sense. Does it mean anything? I, I know people have brought it up in the past and there have been members of the artistic community who have received the Order of Canada and it's always a nice thing. I'll, you know, when the phone rings next year and I pick up and I will gladly accept the Order of Canada. I'm waiting any any year now. Um, 
I'm actually curious, like, what does it really mean other than a recognition? Do you do you get some prize money with it? I know you get to meet the governor general. Do you hang out in Rideau Hall? What What is actually, like, in a non-COVID world, what happens when you receive the Order of Canada? Well, the most significant thing, I think, is that you get a pin. I mean, you get an honor, you get an award, and you get a medal. Um, but there's a pin that's a micro, that's a small version of the medal, and you wear it on your lapel uh, all the time. and uh, For the rest of your life. Pretty much. and uh, it's, it's a Canadian rule. It's it's not a rule rule, but you're expected to wear it all the time. And it's a really nice thing when you meet people and they have that and you know what it is, and you're able to say, wow, that's really cool. What'd you, what'd you get it for? Mm-hmm. And uh, and you get to talk about their career and their work. I mean, I think it's impressive when I find out that someone has been a recipient of it. Um, do I check to see who is every year no um except for this one but um but does your mother call you to let you know that so and so definitely definitely who has it who's jewish got the order of canada yeah probably i mean even that's kind of what happened this week with um kara who you interviewed david she actually grew up going to the same synagogue as my grandparents and my mom and and told me how much um she has such fond memories of my grandfather giving her candy and underneath his talus at show. So it's kind of cool when you think about someone that, you know, my family has known for decades, who's now receiving this big order. Um, I think that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I, uh, I've always been a fan of the order of Canada. I think the Canada does civilian honors really well and usually picks the right group of people. And, um, it's a very uh, respectful and respectable thing that we do. It, it feels very Canadian to have this big order of Canada. And, and there are, every country has, France has, you know, the, the Chevaliers in various uh, disciplines. And um, the U.S. has the, you know, the Liberty, uh, the Kennedy Honours. And, you know, there's, there's so many um, countries that do this. I like the way Canada does it. I think it's a beautiful thing. And I'm always look, I always look forward to, to the announcements when they announce and who, who, who do I know that's on there or who do I know of that's on there. Um, and I'm liking the fact that we're about to go and hear from uh, four of them. Joining me now is Rabbi Baruch Friedman Cole, uh, who is the Emeritus Rabbi at Beth Tzedek, and the award that he received uh, for the Order of Canada was for his spiritual and community leadership as head of the Beth Tzedek Synagogue in Toronto and for fostering interfaith dialogue throughout Canada and beyond. Welcome to Bonjour Chai. Okay, so good morning. Excellent. Um, so what's it like uh, being recognized uh, after all these decades of leadership? Um, it's actually been quite amazing to hear all of the comments from people in the community who I think take a great deal of pride in their connection to me because, and in this honor that's being given to me. So there's, there's a sense that um, while I'm being recognized, um, they are also being recognized. And I, and I want to say that my feelings actually were a bit uh, ambivalent. I was both honored by this, but also uh, very humbled, because I know that there are people uh, who really are superstars um, in Canada. And, um, uh, you know, um, Sinclair, who was honored this year, is honored this year 
uh, is an example of that. And, and many of us are, are good at what we do. Hopefully we make a big difference for Canada, um, but there are real superstars. So I'm, I'm humbled at the same time to be among them. Amazing. Um, I know that you join a very small group, a select group of uh, rabbis. Uh, there are other spiritual leaders, but I, I think we counted five uh, total uh, rabbis who have been honored with the me- membership in the Order of Canada. Um, what's it like um, to be getting this in terms of spiritual leadership? I know that you said that it's it's about a community, um, but um, you're in august uh, company with you know Rabbi Gunther Plout, Rabbi Reuven Bulka, um, and others, um, what does it feel like to be a rabbi and representing the Jewish community in that way with the Order of Canada? It, it's deeply uh, moving, actually. Um, I, I have wonderful colleagues, um, and they extend across Canada and across all of the denominations. And everybody I know works very hard. It doesn't matter whether it's a big congregation or a small congregation. Everybody is really working hard trying to make a difference for their community um, and for their city and, and for Canada as a whole. And to be, to be picked out, to be selected um, uh, by, uh, by Canada and by the Governor General is really especially meaningful, but it also is a way of saying that, that all of the rabbis on some level uh, do this kind of work and all of us um, really understand how important what we do is for our community. But this is a way that the, the, the Governor General, that Canada, as it were, uh, recognizes Jewish spiritual leadership. And I know that uh, one of the things that is mentioned specifically is that um, the work that you did fostering interfaith dialogue throughout Canada and beyond. If you can tell us a bit um, about the work that you've done in that place and where you think it should be going. Um, wh- where's the future of interfaith dialogue working towards? Sure. So I've worked with uh, a lot of different communities, and um, uh, we have tried um, both locally in terms of our neighborhood interfaith group, um, but also uh, in terms of our Path of Abraham and now what we call um, sharing perspectives to bring Jews, Muslims, and Christians um, to Israel and to Palestine and for them to have the experience of understanding three religious traditions and two people in one land. So we've worked very hard at trying to encourage and making people aware of the complexities of all of those relationships. Locally, I've worked very much with the the Muslim community. Um, We have uh, developed rings of peace around uh, mosques uh, at times when they have felt threatened, and they have in turn um, reciprocated with rings of peace at times when, when our community was threatened. I've worked with the Catholic Church on, on serving on a, on a, um, a bilateral commission for Jewish-Catholic relations, and actually just finished a major uh, article that's going to appear in a festschrift in honor of the Cardinal here on Catholic-Jewish relations over the last 30 years uh, in Canada. And one of the things that is clear is that these kinds of conversations and dialogue uh, have some long-term implications, both in terms of reducing conflict, but also in terms of encouraging better relationships um, and building an awareness 
um, that we are in some way all in it together. Um, one example of that uh, was uh, in Toronto after the, uh, the terrible uh, ramming by a van mm -hmm. and the killing of 10 women along Young Street. Um, I wrote a letter to some people saying, you know, we should have some sort of interfaith gathering. And out of that grew a number of other people took it over and it grew into a major uh, statement of solidarity and vigil um, to which a lot of people came, uh, including the Prime Minister. And uh, I was able to say at that time, in, in Canada, we don't run away from challenges like this. We run toward people to help them. And that's an important message for all of us. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rabbi Baruch Friedman Cole. Thank you very much for inviting me, Abby. Kara Tannenbaum is a Canadian researcher and practicing physician in the fields of geriatrics, women's health, and gender research. Since 2015, she has been the scientific director of the Canadian Institutes of Health Research's Institute of Gender and Health. Kara, welcome to Bonjour Chai. It's a pleasure to be here. Shalom. Shalom. Uh, Mazel Tov on receiving the order. How do, how do you feel? I feel so humbled and honored by this recognition, which I wish I could share with so many people. I, everyone I know works so hard to, to, to give charity, to contribute, to, to better the lives of Canadians. And it's really the wonderful people that I work with every day that makes the magic happen. So I'm curious about the people that you work with. If you could sort of give me like a, a brief history of your career and, and some of the work that you've been focusing on. <laughs> well, I, I think I was exposed to being a leader when I was young. You know, my mother was president of Hebrew Foundation School when I was eight or nine years old. Uh, my father, Jaime Tannenbaum, uh, married to my mom, Marion Tannenbaum, is one of the most generous people I know. He's a physician. And my mom, believe it or not, was discouraged from becoming a physician because she indicated that she wanted to have a family and children. And was she ever determined that her three daughters <laughs> would then become physicians and help others in a way that she wished she had? I went into medicine and it was when I was working in the coronary care unit that I saw that older men and women were treated differently when they had a heart attack. And this of course is going back, I don't, you know, to the 1980s, 1990s, when men went immediately to the, you know, cardiac cath lab and they, they, you know, went for surgery for their heart attack. But at the time, many women were just given hormone replacement therapy. Some people listening will remember that. And I said, wow, that's so cool. Women and men are treated differently. What does the science have to say about that? And when I did my research, I found out that older women were often excluded from the scientific research on which we base our treatments for different medical conditions. In fact, there were, you know, eight out of 10 drugs withdrawn from the market between 1990 and 2000 because they were either fatal or had more severe side effects in women because female anatomy wasn't even considered in the drug development process. I've dedicated my life to looking at medication safety and ensuring that both sex, biological factors, and gender, social factors, are taken into account in the development of treatments, of policies, of practices, so that everyone gets the care and health that they deserve. 
That is fascinating. I work part-time as a a recreational therapy aid worker in a senior's residence itself. So I know that this comes up a lot, a lot. So I I was just wondering, what do then we as a society sort of feel is changed when we're dealing with senior citizens and the types of medications that they are receiving or the type of care in general that they may or may not be receiving? What a lot of people don't realize is that several of the medications that have been on the market for a while were only tested in, well, people like you, David, young, healthy men. And yet as we get older, sadly, (laughs) our physiology isn't quite as robust as it was when we were younger. For instance, uh, women in particular, but older adults have greater fat to muscle content and many drugs linger in fat tissue. I'm thinking specifically about sleeping pills, which tend to stay in the blood and tissues much longer than when you're younger so that when you wake up the next morning, the effect of the sleeping pill is still in your body when you drive your car and has been associated with an increased risk of car accidents and drowsiness and confusion and lack of attention. But no one really talks about that. And so, you know, if you don't mind me uh, kind of pitching the link to the Canadian Deprescribing Network's website, an organization that we set up, it's www.deprescribingnetwork.ca. And what we've tried to do is develop very clear, plain language informational brochures about different classes of medication and how they affect your body with age, what side effects you might expect, and what are safer sometimes um, non-drug therapies that that you can use. For instance, if you want to have better sleep, you could do cognitive behavioral therapy and other things. Now, you can't deprescribe all medications, obviously, but there are certainly there's certainly value in asking: Is this still the right medication for me, or can I stop one of them? When I teach the medical residents and uh, students, I always say, if you're going to prescribe a new medication to someone who's older, maybe see if you could de-prescribe one at the same time. Just because I imagine, and and I'm even thinking of my parents right now with all the medications that they happen to be on, that things might be mixing and causing uh, more problems down the road too. You got this it. Is, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure many people are just worried about, we're just over-prescribing. And, and this is something that I wanted to also ask too. You know, sometimes I think about the lobbyists in the U.S. in terms of the the pharma the pharma care lobbyists and just trying to push medications on the doctors at all times. Too, it's not something I tend to think of a lot going on in Canada. But has your research or, or have you found that this is something that is still occurring even in our Medicare? Canadian system? Fortunately, direct-to-consumer advertising for medications is not legal in Canada. So you don't see the big billboards that you might see in the United States. And we have become very rigorous around transparency if physicians talk to pharmaceutical representatives. Now, I I don't want to completely bash pharmaceutical representatives because Uh, Many drugs and new chemotherapies and new immunotherapies save lives. So thank goodness we have medications on the market and we're not where we were 50 years ago because we have extended life expectancy significantly. But you're absolutely right. Many of these medications do interact. Um, We know that up to two-thirds of older adults in Canada take one what we call potentially inappropriate medication. And when I say potentially inappropriate, it means that it may no longer be helping them or 
uh, we might be able to give a lower dose of that medication because their their kidneys not be may not be functioning as efficiently and it may linger in the body longer. Uh, you mentioned medication side effects. They can lead to such things as falls, dizziness, confusion, leg swelling, um, and also account for many visits to the emergency room. Sometimes if you take uh, diabetes medications, like the sulfonylurea drugs, just for instance, it could interact and make your blood sugar go even lower than it should. So asking, is this medication right for me? Does it fit with my other medications? And are we sure it's not causing side effects that I then interpret as symptoms and get more medications to treat the side effect of those medications, what we call a prescribing cascade, are questions that older adults, their children, and their health advocates should be asking every time they go see a health practitioner. The pharmacist can answer these questions too. I think sometimes we forget how useful pharmacists can be. Anyone can make an appointment with their pharmacist to go over their drug medication list. And one thing that I've really enjoyed is working with pharmacists to try to promote deprescribing um, and educational brochures to be handed out to patients, which you could find on that website, www.deprescribingnetwork.ca. Absolutely. Um... I, I just want to know, is there anything else that you would like to mention for today? I would just like to say thank you to everyone who's a health advocate. M many listeners go with friends, or at least they did before COVID, um, are the voices for their older parents who maybe need support, either getting to the physician or speaking up about their health. I would encourage people to, to be empowered to learn more about their medications, to recall and ask, you know, I'm a man, I'm a woman. Um, is this the right medication for me? Is this the right dose? So we're very good at asking questions in Judaism. I learned that from my parents. <laughs> uh, I would end with the recommendation to ask more questions. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and all the best for your uh, Order of Canada. Thank you. Take care. Here with me today, I have Jane Heyman. Jane has worked in professional theater in Canada and England as a director, stage manager, actor, and acting teacher for over 50 years. Throughout her career, she's developed new plays and created opportunities for women in the performing arts, including co-founding the Women in View Festival, working as the new Play Center's associate director, and facilitating the Wet Ink Collective's workshop for women writers. I'm very excited to have her here today. Um, so Jane, hi, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. Of course. I'm really surprised that we never met. I lived in Vancouver for five years and we never crossed paths. I know. I discovered that by listening to your podcast, but how did that happen? <laughs> but did I, I don't know. And I'm gone already, but I'm glad we're meeting now. <laughs> so uh, first off, I wanted to ask you a little bit about what drives your work, because it seems like a lot of, a lot of the work that you're doing is really, um, encapsulated in the nomination that you received for the Order of Canada, uh, which was for your long lasting contributions to Vancouver's cultural landscape. And you see that with, you provided opportunities for emerging artists with Studio 58, you provided opportunities for retired or senior artists through PAL, uh, opportunities for women. So what, do you have kind of a through line of what helps you pick what kind of projects you wanna work on to achieve those goals? Or is this just something that you kind of fell into being that person in the community? Well I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, since I 
found out that I received this award, which was overwhelming. I, I think it goes right. I mean, it's family, right? It's, I think it's always family one way or another. You're either in reaction to your family or you are carrying on. And my parents um, were both Holocaust survivors. They escaped from Poland uh, after the war started. They were part of the cohort of people who were saved by the Japanese consul Senpo Sugihara. Uh, and they ended up in Vancouver, despite Canada's racist policies. And after the war, my grandmother, who had survived the Warsaw Ghetto, also came to live with us. And my grandparents, all of them were social activists one way or another. My grandmother and grandfather on my father's side, they were on the board of Janusz Korczak's Dom Sheret, the children's orphanage in, in Poland. And I grew up knowing all those stories, you know, and so I think both my brother and I drank the water that said you have to do something to make the world a better place. Now I didn't think of this consciously. I mean, it's only you know you look back on your life and you go, "Hmm, there's a pattern here." And yeah, I think that's, yeah, for sure. That's the pattern that I I notice, as many people do, the people in our world who are disenfranchised, who are, in some way needing a help up. And I've always been aware of the fact that I had a very privileged life, even though, I mean, my parents came here with nothing except yeah. a good education and they both spoke English quite well. So that immediately wow. gave them. That's really rare forward. too. Well, that was my grandparents again, you know, that the wow. languages and studying were important in the family. So they did, you know, so I had a safe, middle-class upbringing and so many people in my position who are second generation didn't have that 100 percent. and my parents never let us forget that either. yeah <laughs> so it's a good thing you know yeah fair enough so do you see that as being a family influence then that that you have this this drive to make a difference or do you also see that as uh like a jewish passion or drive that that brings I, about I think, it's, I think it's both Okay. I really think it's both. I mean, my parents um, were not religious. They were secular Jews. I mean, I think in Poland, they'd been very, very assimilated. And, um, but on the other hand, they didn't hide the fact that we were Jewish. Uh, and we, you know, we celebrated holidays. We did everything at home. Mm -hmm. But as I, uh, when I had a child, um, and she wanted to have a bat mitzvah. So I went hunting for a synagogue and I, in my fifties, I joined a synagogue and I started learning more about Judaism. And of course the whole tikkun olam is part of, of our tradition. And so what I see is that my parents may not have belonged to in any kind of an organized religion, but they, everything they did right. espoused Jewish values, the core Jewish values. So you know, now that I'm in my synagogue, I'm part of the coordinating committee for Tikkun Olam. And which, which synagogue <laughs> is that? Uh, it's Or Shalom. Or Shalom, yeah. Uh, on the east side of Vancouver. Yeah. Lovely. So before I let you go, I just wanted to hear about a little bit more about what it felt like to be a recipient of the Order of Canada. What does that mean to you? And, and how was it to receive the news? <laughs> um, I'll tell you a story. So I found out in November, I mean, I think everybody found out in November, but we're asked just to only tell our immediate family ah. to wait until the official announcement. So I was driving over the Burrard Street Bridge. I had a doctor's appointment. And once I'd made sure that the phone call wasn't a scam, 
and I actually <laughs> took it in, uh, which was quite overwhelming. You know, I went on and did the things I had to do. And then I came home intending to phone my daughter, put her on speakerphone and tell her and, and my husband at the same time. I walked through the front door and I discovered that my cat had pooped and thrown up in the front hall. So the first oh thing I had to do was go into the kitchen and get some rubber gloves and some cleaning stuff and mop up and clean the floor. And then I went into the kitchen and something had spilled on the floor. So I had to help my husband clean up. So half an hour later, I got to phone them and tell, you know, phone my daughter and tell both of them what had happened. But I thought, this is great. You know, the world is giving me a message. You may be Order of Canada now, you may be a member of that esteemed cohort, but you still have to clean up your own messes. And that's mm. kind of how I feel about it. It's, um, Great answer. it's a huge honor. And when I look at the names of all the people who've received it, I frankly still don't quite believe that I'm one of them. But it, what I'm finding it's making me do is think about things like my family, which you asked me, you know, how did I get here? Yeah. Also think, okay, so now what are you going to do? Because this is not about resting on your laurels. You know, the motto of the Order of Canada is um, translates roughly as they want to make the country better. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I don't have a huge number of years left in the total scheme of things, but it's, I don't know what the answer is, but that's what I'm asking myself. Wow. So much to take in. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure we have so much more that we could talk about. I hope we get a chance to talk again soon. Yeah, that'll be a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Olga Korper is one of the appointees to the Order of Canada for her contributions to the visual arts through her impassioned promotion and exhibition of Canadian and international contemporary art. Olga, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. So. I read that in 1973, while you were on honeymoon in Europe with your second husband, George Corper, you realized you were unhappy and wanted to do something more with your life. What did you end up doing? I ended up like a maniac opening a gallery in Toronto. And it is, it is not an easy profession, but it's been a wonderful journey. Of course, I got incredibly lucky, but it's been a great life. I've had a magical life. Sure. So what sort of has happened in that magical life of yours? Uh, what did you discover? Who did you promote? How did you sort of come to visual arts itself? Well, I graduated from the art college. I was a trained artist and I taught art for five or six years. Then I decided that this was, this was what I wanted to do with my life. Quite a mad decision, but... I got very lucky and it's turned out okay. I would rather be in the gallery than just about anywhere else in the world. When my partner and I go on vacation, he can't go right back to work. He has to take an extra day to brace himself. Whereas I can't wait to open the gallery and walk in. And Leo says about me that I'm one of the luckiest people in the world because my hobby is my job. It's a difficult hobby, but it makes for a difficult but rewarding job. Now, I, I do admit to being a bit of a, a novice or a beginner for the visual arts itself. So I was just really curious how you spot a great piece of art. What, what makes something really stand out for you? Oh, golly. You know, everybody asks me how I choose my artists. And I have this simplistic way of doing it. 
Um, first of all, artists approach me all the time. And I generally speaking, turn most of them down. But my simplistic rule is that I go by my stomach. If I fall in love with one piece and absolutely lust for it and crave to own it, then I know the artist is for me. And that's a really simple rule, but it sure works. So really just something speaks to you right out of the 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 image itself or the, the, the picture and you just sort of says, that's it, I, ha I have to have it. Yes, absolutely. Huh. Fair, it's, fair enough. It's really, it's really an issue of falling in love. I, I'm curious if your uh, Jewish identity has ever intercepted with ground in the art world at all. Not really. I don't pay attention to race or religion. I have Jewish artists, I have black artists, I have gay artists, I have females, males, and that doesn't really enter into the picture. It's all about falling in love with the item itself. And that's the only rule. And growing up as a Jew, has that ever meant anything to you itself? Has that ever um, brought anything to you as an artist itself? I don't know. Probably, but subconsciously. I... I don't show any religious art of any religion, Jewish or Christian or anything else. And I'm not really keen on structured religions. I have a wonderful client who's a Catholic priest. And I once apologized to him for not being very religious. And he said, but Olga, but you're very spiritual and that's what counts. I love him. I'm sure. Um... I'm curious how, when you found out that you were obtaining the Order of Canada, what, what did that mean to you? I was absolutely thrilled. I was just tickled. And when I told one of my artists, she was so excited. And she said, oh, Olga, you've been knighted. Isn't that wonderful? The arts don't get a lot of media coverage. So we're very grateful for all acknowledgements. It's a wonderful thing. I'm honored and tickled. Absolutely. Um, I, I do want to bring your attention to something that sort of has made it into the social media and online scene a few days ago, about five days ago, a journalist, Deirdre Kelly, posted something online, a story that was on the front page of the Globe and Mail for over 25 years, raising accusations that you engaged in theft against a Canadian artist, Yves Gaucher, who has now passed away. She made some claims that Mr. Gaucher was never really repaid in full for a loan he made to your gallery, and, that's, and that you sold some 12 of his artworks without his initial knowledge. Um, I know you've, you've brought this up in the past, but would you like to comment on these new allegations that were raised five days ago? Well, first of all, I didn't see them, luckily, but um, Yves Gaucher was a huge favorite artist of mine, and he was totally repaid for everything. And it wasn't for his artwork. He actually loaned me money to buy the building that I'm in. And he was repaid totally. Is there anything else in terms of that that you wanted to comment on in terms of those allegations itself, in, in terms of what happened and whether there were any other issues involved in that? No, Eve got, Eve was very angry with me in the end. And actually, it was not unjustified. Um, 
I mean, he was right to be angry. Now he insisted on loaning me the money, claiming that I had made it for him to begin with and that he insisted on putting money into this. And then all hell broke loose and I lost the building. I'm still in it, but I'm a tenant. And it was very hard to find the money to pay him back. But I did. In the end, yeah. Are there any? Do you have any regrets with that? No. You know, I have very few regrets in my life. And when I say that I've had a wonderful, magical life, I have. I have very little that I regret. The one thing I regret is that my father is not alive to see me get this award. He'd be so tickled. I just wanted to know, is there anything else that you would like to say? Well, I'll tell you what I'm really looking forward to. I want to meet the governor general's dog. (laughs) Dog sounds wonderful. And I love dogs. And I love Rideau Hall. And I really want to meet the governor general and the dog. And when does that uh, meeting take place between you and the dog? I don't even know the dog's name. Uh, I have it. It came on a card. It's I think it's an Inuit name. And the dog sounds lovely. I uh, I wish you all the best, and I hope you uh, have a great meeting with the Governor General and her dog as well. <laughs> thank you. Olga, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to Bonjour Chai. We wish you all the best. It's a pleasure. So I'm talking to uh, Rabbi Adam Shire, who is the uh, rabbi of the Congregation Shire Shemaim in Montreal. Um, and the reason why I wanted to bring you on, Rabbi, is because... Um, every week that I walk into shul, there's a big uh, poster, a big uh, piece of art almost. It's a, it has a list of all the names of all the people as of 2016, and to which since then we've had an, an additional 10 uh, members of the congregation, people associated with the congregation that are members of the Order of Canada. And I thought that that's such a remarkable number. And was like, what's it like to know that on any given week in shul, you probably have two or three pins um, with members of the Order of Canada and just knowing that there's such a heritage there associated with Shar Shemaim. I think it's a, it, it certainly is a point of distinction for our community. We are very proud of the fact that we have so many orders of Canada and that many are, are regular attendees of our, of our community. Uh, but I think it's also important to say that, that we think of ourselves as a family. We often call ourselves the Shar family. And when one of the members of, of your family is recognized for doing something great, that's that's amazing. It makes you proud. But but we're proud of the successes of all of our members. And it might be something that we even take for granted in many ways as a community. The fact that we have so many orders of orders of Canada and a really remarkable number within a community when you put it in those terms of how many, you know, have been added to that list over the last number of years, it, it, it went almost becomes accustomed to these announcements within the congregation, but each one is really an amazing point of, of, of distinction for us as a community. Is it, um, is there, do you think that there's something specific about the Shar that it attracts people that are so talented? Do you think that it inspires, do you think that the, the party sandwiches are the things that inspire people to become, you know, uh, so, you know, driven and high achieving to, to get all these awards? Yeah, I wish we had that, that secret that we could share with others of the party sandwiches or the occasional cholent that will bring out a kiddish that that's what does it. The scotch that, that that served at Kiddush, that that, that for sure would uh, we, we could capitalize on that success. But I, I, I don't know if it's something that a community does per se. But I would say that 
the numbers and, and the individuals who are members of Royal Canada certainly impact the community, that there are certain uh, aspects of our community identity that, that we focus on excellence, that what we do is, when we do something, we do it well, that we focus on our role as a, as a Jewish community within broader society and, and broader Quebec and Canadian Montreal society. I think those values are driven by our membership. I don't know that it's something that the synagogue impacts these members of order of the Order of Canada or, or, or vice versa or the reverse, but I do think uh, it's something that impacts the character of the community when we have so many members who have who have achieved so much in, in, in the world. We didn't have a chance to speak to uh, the most recent one, the one that got me thinking about this, uh, the most recent one who just got nominated in December, uh, our colleague and friend, Morris Goodman. Uh, are there any uh, stories, anecdotes, moments that you think, oh, this was a time that made me realize he is deserving of the Order of Canada? I think, I think it's a great question. And, uh, and certainly Morris has, has impacted, well, he's impacted the world but he's also impacted our congregation. I think that's a really important point for really all of the members of the Order of Canada. We have this great list that stands outside uh, in, our, in our lobby. And the list, yes, it needs to be updated because many have been added since we, we recognized the, the, the members uh, at a major congregational event a number of years ago. But the, kind of the, the, the point of the list and the point that I'll often make when, when pointing people to this list is that the people on that list had an impact in the world but also in our community. And that certainly is something that, you know, while we stand back and look at what Morris has done in the pharmaceuticals industry, what Morris has done in, in the areas of, of philanthropy, and certainly in the last number of years, uh, taking that to a whole new level with, uh, with their family foundation, that's quite extraordinary. But what they've done for us as a community is something that we value, that we value as well. Uh, are there any uh, notable members that you always think about when you look at that list? So when, when we give tours of the congregation to groups, it could be anybody visiting, it could be a, a group of students, it could be some tourists in Montreal who came to see the synagogue, but I'll often take them uh, to the upstairs lobby where we do have that, that sign listing the Orders of Canada, and I'll show them with great pride what our congregation has, has contributed to, uh, to, to broader society. And I'll note, uh, I'll note certainly the variety of, of disciplines that are in that list, the fact that there are people the worlds, of course, of business and philanthropy and academia and sciences and, and medicine and music and architecture and accountants and lawyers. I mean, you know, basically uh, every discipline possible is, is, is represented on that list, which I think is unique for a, for a community. And one person that I'll often point out was somebody who I was you know, very fortunate to know for a number of years, my first years of the congregation, was a man named Morty Brownstein, Morton Brownstein, who was the uh, president of Brown's Shoes. And I'll point out that you know, he certainly made an impact in the world through his charity, through his philanthropy. But also in our congregation, he was our candy man, which means that when the children would run into the, into the synagogue, the first person they would run to, when my kids would run into Shul, they would run to him before they would run to me. And he was this wonderfully affectionate, warm, warm person. And that was his role, was as, as the candy man. And when he went to Brown's Shoes as well, went to the counter to check out, you would see there also that he made sure that there was a, a jar of candies in his stores as well, because that's what he, he was the candy man. He was bringing sweetness to the world. And so I'll tell that, tell that story, and then sometimes I'll add as well that we were honored as a community to, to have at the end of his life, to have his funeral in our sanctuary. And one of the ways that we offered a tribute to him was to have these big 
jars of candy at the entrance so that when people walked in walked out they were able to experience the sweetness of, of his life and I think that's very reflective of so many of the of the members of the order in that uh, in that what they brought to the world was what they brought to, to our synagogue and in this case it was candy but in other cases it's uh, it certainly is a drive for excellence it's a sense of, of, of philanthropy it's changing the world it's pride it's it's all the things that make uh, the members of our community so so wonderful. Are there any? Are, are you 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 have a list that you secretly you don't have to put out names now? But is it something that you end up thinking about for the future? That oh, I should be thinking about this person to be nominating, or I should be involved in pushing that person's name forward, or what are the other honors? Are they, how does this you know the life of a rabbi who's who's dealing with people who have these honors who or who should have these honors? How much does it impact um, thinking your thinking when you interact with these people in general? No, I, I don't think of who should be nominated for, for Order of Canada. I do think of who should be nominated. Everybody should be nominated. For, I think of who should be nominated for Chatan Torah and Chatan Breshit and Eshev Chayel and all of those honors that, that we have, who should be honored by the congregation, is, uh, is more my, my thinking. But, uh, you know, I know of many, many members who are certainly worthy of consideration. If anybody would solicit my opinion, I could, uh, I could certainly make some some recommendations, but it's not something on an ongoing basis that I Amazing. that I think about. Um, well, thank you for uh, leading such a congregation. Thank you for agreeing to speak with us, and uh, I hope that uh, there will be many, many more members uh, under your watch. And I assume that there will be. Uh, absolutely, I certainly certainly hope so, and certainly trust that there will be. And and again, we're very proud of the role that our congregation plays in Canadian society and. Montreal and Quebec and, uh, and within our community as well. You can find links to the honorees in the show notes, and you can email us at bonjour at thecjn.ca to let us know what you thought. We'd also love to hear any stories you might have about a colleague, a friend, or a family member that is a member of the Order of Canada and how you found their story to be moving or valuable. Email us at bonjour at thecjn.ca or tell us about it in our Slack channel. What's our Slack channel? It's our frozen chosen group of people that like to talk about the issues that they heard about on the show or issues that they'd like to hear on the show. Uh, if you want to become a member of our Slack channel, all you have to do is send us an email at bonjour at thecjn.ca and ask to join the Slack channel and we'll add you in and you can join the conversation. I had the chance to speak with Rabbi Daniel Korupkin of the Bayit in Toronto this week. Uh, he wrote an op-ed in the CJN, which was a reworking of his sermon from last week, where he talks about what to do with the books of Chaim Walder. For those of you who haven't been following the story, Chaim Walder was a very popular Orthodox author and psychologist who wrote a series of books called Kids Speak. In November, Haaretz came out with an extensive investigation that documented how he sexually assaulted several women that were under his care. He was subsequently found guilty by a religious court, which is actually quite rare in these types of cases, and then, uh, as likely as a result of that, uh, took his own life the next day. In the aftermath of this, one of his victims was so upset at the honor that he was still receiving, even after his death, that she also took her own life. It's a terrible and very sad story, and there is much hope that this may be a turning point within the community in terms of sexual assault, but only time will tell for that. So joining us uh, to talk about the uh, the issue here is uh, Rabbi Daniel Korupkin, the rabbi of the Bayit in Toronto. Um, Rabbi Korupkin is also an immediate past president of the Rabbinical Council of America, uh, and he just wrote a wonderful op-ed uh, about this for the CJN, and uh, you know, I decided that I really felt it was important to follow up about this. Um, Rabbi Daniel, thank you for coming on Bonjour Chai. Thank you, Ravavi. Nice to be here. Um, so... 
you know, when the the article you 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 speak about the idea that like we really have to move to a place of action, and uh, the idea of action being more than just removing this person's books. It's uh, from our libraries. It's speaking to our children, recognizing that ex- telling our children that that sometimes people are not what they seem um, is an important first step. Um, what are the other steps that you think need to happen, and what are the steps that are already happening? Right. So, I mean, this is a it's a very painful prospect to essentially strip our children of their youthful innocence when we would rather them look at the world um, in a much more optimistic, positive way. As a matter of fact, I mean, this, the CJN piece was really uh, an abridged version of my, of my sermon, the, the drasha that I, I give now on Fridays because of COVID. Um, and someone responded to me and said that, you know, because I had, I had basically said, that there are so many heroes that our children have from Jewish history, um, and I'm th- th- those are safer heroes than the heroes that we that are alive today. You know, like this fellow Chaim Walder was a great heroic figure for so many children because he came to their defense and he said, you know, he understood them and he gave them a voice, and th- those are wonderful things. But with the living heroes, you never know uh, what what dark secrets and and sinister uh, aspects of them may exist behind closed doors and someone responded to me and said uh, you know that's 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 not an acceptable solution in his opinion either our children need living heroes and to a certain degree i i agree with him and, and that's where the struggle comes in the struggle really is how do you create that balance for your children that on the one hand, you want them to be able to have role models and adults who are good people that they should look up to, that they should strive to emulate, whether it's a Rebbe, a teacher, um, a community leader. And at the same time, make sure that they're aware that you can have heroes, but realize that every human being, whether it's a famous athlete or whether it's a famous rabbi, or uh, any other kind of heroic figure that they may have in their lives, a musician. These are people who are human beings with flaws. And so we have to do like what Rabbi Mayer said in the Talmud about his teacher, who was a heretic. We have to extract the fruit and discard the peel. Um, Now, the problem is with a guy like Walder is that he used his position of power and influence with children to exploit them. And so at the same time that we have to debrief our children and make sure they know that everyone's just a human being and everyone makes mistakes and everyone has flaws, we also have to very carefully educate our children about not allowing themselves to ever be put in a situation where they're alone with an adult, even an adult that they trust, who makes them feel in any way uncomfortable. And so that was really part of the the message that I wanted to give is that we cannot afford to allow our children anymore to feel that sense of youthful innocence and to view everyone as a good person. Most people are good, but not. But even good people sometimes make terrible mistakes and that we can't allow our children to become the victims of those mistakes, those tragic figures. So um, if we take that attitude and we mirror it to the adult level, which is where a lot of these issues also come up, you know, the... We used to say that there was, you know, this person was a bad weed, this person was an exception, but at the, you know, generally most people are good. 
it's clear that this is something more systemic, right? And I even used to be the one that would say, oh, you see, it's only in the Orthodox world and liberal rabbis don't have these issues. And clearly that issue is not no longer true that there are, there's been sexual impropriety and financial improprieties within liberal community, uh, liberal Jewish communities. Um, in the conservative movement, the reform movement has seen, you know, their share in recent years. So what can we possibly do to maintain this idea that, well, we're, we're generally a good community, um, but at the end of the day, we, have, we can no longer, um, you know, trust that this person is good until they're proven otherwise, right? We have this, we clearly have this issue where so many people um, no longer, um, when, when there's so much trust Right, the people uh, that are victims, the people that are coming through to try to break that trust about these great, supposedly great figures, um, aren't believed anymore. Um, and we see this even in, you know, with with the passing of Heimwalder. And one of the reasons why this woman who 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 took her own life in the aftermath of his of his suicide is that she said, even after this person was dead, we have these people that are, um, you know, lauding him and extolling him and going to his funeral and his shiva as if he was the greatest man alive. And this is perpetuating this idea within the community that. Um, we don't really believe the victims and we um, and that these people are still people that we have to you know work towards so what can we possibly do within the community to say um, if you have a problem if something is an issue for you as an individual you should come forth you should go to the authorities we are going to believe you um, because um, just because a person is a rabbi we don't want to automatically give this person the benefit of the doubt anymore I mean I think all of that which you said is true we have to be cautious though to not incriminate um, an individual based on one person's accusations. You know, in the case of Walder, there were, I believe, 22 individual reports or 22 individuals who came forward and implicated him. And when you have a preponderance of evidence like that, there's absolutely no way to exonerate a person. Um, uh, I, I think we have to be very careful that still we believe in the principle of innocent until proven guilty. For yeah. sure. For sure. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there are many times when somebody comes forward and is either told, don't come forward because it's not right. This person is an Adam Gadol. This person is a great man, whatever it is. Or um, somebody comes forward and we tend to downplay it or we denigrate it because we say we're not interested in doing this. How many times have we heard that we say we don't talk about these things because it's Lashon Hara, when in reality it's evil speech and, and in reality it's the opposite. We have a responsibility to right. say these things right. if we have these suspicions. And and, and I feel like the, the, af the atmosphere in the community is the thing that needs to change. And so that's what I think... I'm, I'm sort of going towards is like, what do you think can possibly change within the community that will change the entire atmosphere so that we're no longer um, feeling like nobody's ever able to come forward? Right. So I think it depends on which community you're talking about. I think the community that you and I come from, Ravavi, is very different from the um, extreme Haredi community that a segment of, you know, it, within the Haredi world in Israel today, there are many different voices and many different approaches. And I think slowly, slowly, even the people who uh, had a knee-jerk reaction to come to Walder's defense are slowly coming to the realization that they've made a terrible mistake. Um, I think that um, as, as horrified as many of us are in the Western world to see how backwards the some of the responses were, I think the Haredi world has made tremendous strides over the last decade or so uh, in coming to terms with the fact that we do have to completely 
have a zero tolerance policy for anyone who takes advantage of another human being, whether sexually or otherwise. And we have to make sure that the authorities are involved and that person has to be completely excised or ostracized from the community. That message certainly, I think, is true in, uh, in Jewish communities throughout North America today. Um, um, it, it wasn't always that way, admittedly. Um, I think that there was a time, even in Toronto, where I currently reside, where uh, there, were, there was a cadre of rabbis who felt that if a person is accused of sexual misconduct, it should not go to the authorities, but should be handled by the rabbanim in a very hush-hush way. But that is no longer the case. I think there's a general consensus that even among the most uh, um, uh, ultra-Orthodox or Haredi uh, rabbis in our community, that if, so, if, you, if, if a person has been mistreated, they should go to the authorities and the rabbis will, will support them. I do believe that that's currently, the, uh, the, 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 currently what's going on on the ground. If I do ever hear about something contrary to that, I'll be happy to correct myself. But I do believe that that's the status right now. If you think that there was one thing, if you were able to change something within the Haredi community to say, if this changed, then, then I think we'd be in a much better place. What might that be? Is there anything practical on the ground that you think? Oh, well, it's very, yeah, it's very hard to say that because I think it's a, it's a package deal. You, you know, the Haredi community is committed to, cre- to maintaining very high walls to create uh, what they perceive as a protection of their community from deleterious, harmful uh, forces that are within the, within the secular culture. And when, once you put up walls, it goes both ways. I can't see you and you can't see me. And it's very hard for me as someone who sort of is in between those two communities. There's, I mean, I studied in, in a, a Haredi yeshiva and I come from that world to a certain degree, the yeshiva world, but I'm also very part, very much part of the modern Orthodox world, and I'm, and I try to straddle both sides. And the fact of the matter is that um, that it's very hard, as someone who does not feel that he's fully part of that community, to say this is what would need to change. I really do feel it's more important to hear from the Haredi voices themselves, people like. Rav Lopiansky, who has been writing about this subject, people um, uh, like um, uh, the, the Rashiva of Eishat Torah now, who's, uh, uh, who's uh, Rabbi Berkowitz in Israel, who's been quite outspoken on this matter as well. Those are the voices that need to be the most prominently heard right now for the Haredi community themselves. I don't see it as being a productive exercise for me to say what should or should not happen in the Haredi community, because, um, you know, we have enough problems in our own community. We have our own issues that we need to address in our own community. It's really not for us to cast our, our own criticisms on someone else's community. We, we have to try and be part of the solution. We have to extend whatever uh, aid and assistance and empathy and anything else that we can help with to make sure that anyone who is a victim and whose voice they who feels that their voice is not being heard, we have to be there and make sure that uh, they have they know that our our address our um, our phone is always available to them, and that we are there to assist them and make sure that their voice is is validated. 
but I think more than that, I don't think it would be appropriate uh, to hear from anyone other than the the leadership from the Haredi community itself. Absolutely. Well, uh, you know, one of the things that touched me the most from your the sermon, which I, re- I read in the original and I read in the uh, in, in the adapted form that's going to be out um, in the CJN, is um, that you spoke about the difference in terms of changing one's mentality. And you speak about paro and the difference between the word chazak and the word kaved, right? And one is about strength. And if, if you 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 actually change something and that's where your your strength comes from and kaved is where things are heavy where your muscles you know relax you talk about the couch potato phenomenon and i think that we are no longer in a place where we can be kaved where that status quo just lives and let lives and you sort of like feel heavy and you can't do anything i think the time is for chizuk the time is for for making action and to to really move to a place of of, of strength and uh and i hope that we are in a turning point within the community and uh Thank you for at least speaking out about this uh, to your community and to the community at large. And thank you. Thank you for all you're doing to get to get the word out, Avi. Thank you so much. For our word of wisdom this week, we go back to Rabbi Baruch Friedman Cole. When my kids were growing up, I adopted a, uh, an approach that I had heard associated with uh, Professor Isidore Rabi, who had won a Nobel Prize in physics. Uh, his mother used to say to him, when he would come back from school, Izzy, did you ask a good question? Not, what did you learn today? Uh, and framing a good question is quintessentially a, um, a Jewish act. Um, in this week's Torah portion, twice um, we're told, and when your children ask, um, this is what you should say. Vihigatata, you didn't have to have a, a response, you have to have a narrative. And it really becomes the basis of the Haggadah and Passover, the four questions, as well as of the four children uh, who are very different from one another. And and clearly not all questions um, show either interest or identification with with, um, what we're about. Uh, And some can really be negative and dangerous. Uh, But we have to encourage those kinds of questions in our synagogue and in synagogues and in our community. Uh, in our families, about who we are as Jews, about our relationship to Israel, about our relationship to Canada. And I would say that um, as Canadian Jews, we have to reclaim a narrative about Canada um, and why Canada is so important and so vital. And we have to reclaim a narrative um, as Jews about Israel um, and what makes Israel such a special country. Why are we so bound and so concerned with Israel? Rather than try to answer that question, I'm just going to leave you with that. Thanks very much. Shabbat Shalom. And now it's time for our Nachas of the Week, where we like to talk about things that made us feel good over the past week or month at this point. Um, what's been giving you Nachas this week, David? It's going to have to go to Jewish Space Lasers this week that zapped Marjorie Taylor Green off of Twitter this week and uh, and Facebook as well, too. So yay, Jewish Space Lasers. May you continue to do your fabulous work across the uh, Jewosphere. Alana, what's your... Nachas. My Nachas is a book that I discovered. Um, Avi, I wonder if you've read this before. Uh, Jewish Meditation, A Practical Guide by Arya Kaplan. Arya Kaplan, yes. There you go. Classic. It's the same thing. I So before I headed off on my five-day trailer retreat, we were gathering some things uh, from my boyfriend's parents and saw this book sitting uh, on the shelf. And uh, both him and I uh, have a meditation practice, and we were very fascinated by it. So we took it with us and read parts of it out loud. 
Um, it's very interesting, and it's um, basically an actual practical step-by-step introduction to meditation and the Jewish practice of meditation in particular, to quote from the back of the book. And he kind of talks about how this is written in, in the early 80s, and he actually passed away a year after the book was published. Um, and he talks about how during that era, a lot of people uh, in the Jewish community were getting really into transcendental meditation. And he wants to shed light on the meditative practices that actually exist within our own history, um, which I found really fascinating because I have a yoga teacher training, which also includes meditation. And this was a really interesting way of blending two things that um, are really profound and important to me. And Arya Kaplan is really interesting, too, because not only was he a practicing Orthodox rabbi, he was also a physicist. So he brings in a lot of really interesting perspectives. Yeah, he passed away when he wasn't even yet 50. It's a tragic yeah. story, but he really was prolific during the time that he was alive and did a lot of really interesting work around uh, Jewish mysticism and uh, just Jewish ideas in general. So yes, check him out. If you like that, though, um, I would highly recommend, I'm going to give you a recommendation uh, that's a lot more in a contemporary idiom and really spoke to me a Ooh. lot more. Um, a book okay. is called Be Still and Get Going, uh, A Jewish Meditation Practice for Real Life. And it was by uh, Rabbi Alan Liu, who is one of the most influential uh, authors that I ever ha- read, even though he's only written about three books and he passed away about 10 years ago. Um, he wrote this book called uh, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared about the high holidays and as, as, a, f- as a spiritual transformation. I literally mm. reread it every high holiday period, um, but we can wow. talk about that when we get to next high holiday period. But he did write a really good book on Jewish mindfulness, and uh, that's this one. I would love um, to check that I out. Would, uh, I can lend it to you next time you're in town and uh, or just like uh, go pick it up at your local library or on wherever the Jeff Bezos sells books. Um, really, really, really great book and really interesting. I, uh, I've learned a lot. He, he was much more influential in my mindfulness practice, which is more based. Uh, mm. I, I'm a big fan of Sam Harris, and I end up using a lot more of his ideas because I like the uh, spiritual but non-denominational approach that he sort of takes so that it doesn't fall too Buddhist, but it doesn't become too Jewy or too Christian. It's just sort of interesting. A thing, and I like my mindfulness yeah. to be relatively neutral. Um, so I'm a big fan of that as well. I like um, uh, listening to Sam Harris's voice when I meditate. It's a very soothing voice. This is absolutely true. Sam Harris has mastered the art of the soothing meditative voice. <laughs> Avi, what's your nachos? Um, my nachos of the week. Um, I heard a great podcast episode um, by uh, the folks at the Dibbuk Theater. Do you know the Dibbuk Theater? I do. As Jewish theater people? Yeah. Um, so they have a Dibbuk cast now. Um, which is really interesting. Um, and the episode that uh, turned me into that was uh, based on a Montreal uh, figure, a popular Montreal figure by the name of Sami El Maghribi. Um, literally means Sami, the uh, person from the Maghreb, who is, his name is Solomon Amzalag, and he was a cantor in Montreal for many years. But before and during that time, he was also a popular singer of Andalusian music from Morocco, um, popular uh, like singer, and they did a whole episode about him and his life. Um, and uh, they did a great job with it. It was in conjunction with the Museum of Jewish Montreal. Um, so if you care about uh, Sephardic music in general or uh, the lives of interesting Montrealers or interesting Jewish characters, um, check it out. It's on the Dibbocast uh, Theater Dibbox podcast, and it's called, I believe the episode was called I Sing and I Pray, which was the name of one of his uh, famous songs. So uh, go check that out.
Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending Friday, January 7th, Shabbat Parashat Bo. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour. And you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at the cjn.ca or chat with us on our Slack channel. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. Okay.